This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Baraschetti on ABC Radio WA. Well, hello there. It is great to have you along today here on the Country Hour and a little later in the hour, after half past 12 today, taking a look at how to kill weeds. Not by spraying them, not by burning them, but there is a new trial underway in Western Australia looking at electrocuting them. You'll find out all about that trial after news headlines at half past 12 today. Also, you might have heard the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is in Perth at the moment. And this morning he's announced more than $240 million is going to be allocated to help Australia develop our critical minerals and rare earths industry. He says he doesn't want to rely on China anymore. We're going to dig them up right here, we're going to refine them right here, and we're going to make the products that use them right here. Every part of that supply chain, we want WA to be the partner of choice. A partner whose products are high quality and consistent. A partner people can trust to deliver as the world has depended on us for iron ore. More from the PM and the money and what it's going to be used for shortly here on the Country Hour. To kick off today, though, the Australian wool exporters are really concerned that an extended coronavirus shutdown in China will have flow-on effects for wool demand and prices here in Australia. Earlier in the week, China's government responded to a spike in COVID-19 infections by shutting down its southern business centre of Shenzhen, a city of 17.5 million people. Now, all businesses except those that supply food, fuel and other necessities were ordered to close or work from home from Monday. Josh Lamb is the president of the Australian Council of Wool Exporters and Processors. Josh, what are the implications of this shutdown for the Australian wool industry? The, the implications for us at the moment are they're shutting, they're locking down provinces, which means wool can't move from one province to another. And, and there's three to four destinations in the processing of early stage processing of wool in China. So that wool needs to move between provinces to be processed and, and turned into a final product. And what that means for the wool industry is that our customers, if they can't move their product and they can't get paid, and that, that might have a negative effect on um, the wool market going forward if if it's an extended, extended lockdown. Can you explain that in a little more detail, how that wool sort of moves once it arrives in China in, in a greasy form? and then the sort of different stages it goes through. But it doesn't all happen in the one place, does it? No, that's correct. I mean, there are some fully vertical integrated mills that, that, that process wool all the way through from the greasy form, which is how we export it from Australia, all the way through to a fabric. But the majority of it is done in, in four stages. So there'll be scouring uh, where the wool's washed in one mill, then it'll go to another mill where it'll be combed, then it'll go to another mill where it'll be made into a yarn and then another mill where that yarn's then made into a fabric of some sort. So it does move around a fair bit. And um, if, if that comes to a halt, then, then that obviously can, um, can have an effect. And what's your information on the length of this sh- shutdown, this current shutdown? Are you getting any information through from the mills or the, the wool uh, industry over in China? Yeah, we, we, we've got a pretty good, pretty good relationship with the industry in China as far as on the ground 
at a ground level with customers and, and associations. So we're just hearing that provinces are being locked, um, transport can't move between these provinces, and it's there's no timeline on how long this will last. Um, we did hear this morning that they're still requiring people to, to isolate for 14 days if they've if they've been outside their province, but they're actually looking at perhaps reducing that to seven, which will obviously help. And that's probably in line with what we've done, you know, in Australia over the last couple of years. But um, no, no, no sort of, no direction on how long this will last, but it's, it's, it's only in the early stages and it does seem to be ramping up fairly significantly. And what about the, the wool supplies in China? If this was to go on for an extended period of time, do they have supplies in there just to keep them going? No, they don't really. In the merino part of, of of the business, stocks are very low in China and around the world. And we've had all the logistic issues over the last two years um, with sea freight and other things, which is which has stretched those supply lines as well. So I don't think China would want this from a wool, wool point of view to go on for an extended period. And we certainly don't want that at our end either. I mean, China's our, our, our major customer of Australian wool and we, we need them to be in the market every week. And it's not the first time during this COVID pandemic that China's ports have been affected and, you know, certain provinces shut down. What happened last time? Um, well, we went through this about this time last year, actually, and it didn't it didn't actually have a huge negative effect on the market. It did push the market sideways for a couple of months where there was no sort of clear directional positivity. But um, essentially, we just had to ride it out and wait until... Um, wait until restrictions are eased and and they got back to normal. I mean, China's pursuing a COVID zero policy and as such, this is how they'll go about it. At this point, if it's just a a brief shutdown, if it lasts a week, we won't really see any impact here in Australia. But if it goes on, say, a month or two, that's when you'll really start to notice something. Yeah, look, I I think a couple of weeks, probably not, um, you won't see too much of an effect. If, If we're talking months, then yeah, we, we could have a problem for sure. And when you say a problem, what did China's just not buying wool? Well, they they'll they'll be less inclined to buy wool if they can't move product on at their end. Although what they're buying today from Australia won't be delivered for several months, so we do have a bit of a window there where it's probably not that critical. But an extended an extended shutdown would definitely flow through to the market here in a negative sense. But really, it'd have to be. You know, it'd have to be months long for that to for that to have an effect. All right, then. Uh, while we've got you too, Josh, um, the shipping situation too, which you touched on earlier, is that st- you know continuing to have an effect on um, you know the trading of wool between Australia and China in particular? Yes, it is, and not just with China, but also other destinations for wool, such as Europe and India. The shipping timeframes for those destinations are um, actually a lot worse than what they are for China. The China shipping issues been a problem, but it hasn't been as severe as as going to Europe um, or to or to India. So we're what we've had is at our end of the chain here in Australia, we've we've gone from a sort of three week window of being able to buy and ship something. We're now getting out to six or seven weeks. So that's that's stretching the industry a little bit here logistically and and also financially. So. I mean, we've been going through it now for two years, but at this time of year, which is the peak of the wool season, it, it really is um, really is having an effect. And, and what effect does that have? Well, essentially, it means exporters get paid as the wool um, as the wool ships or leaves the port, 
that's when we get paid by our customers overseas. So essentially what we're having to do is is to fund that wall for three times longer than we normally would. And that that's stretching cash flows in the industry and it, and it is having a dampening effect on the market. And the other major event in the world right now with Russia invading Ukraine and that war going on for a couple of weeks now, what are the implications of that for the wool industry? Uh, implications early seem to be, in the case of Italy, for example, where a lot of Australian wool goes, premium wool goes, they're having their, their input costs are obviously skyrocketing with the, the and a lot of their energy comes out of Russia into Italy. So that's definitely having an effect there. Customers are telling us there that if, if, if the war doesn't spill out of the Ukraine, it might not be so bad, although their input costs are rising. But if, if that war did... Um, did spill into other parts of Europe, I think, um, yeah, we'd have a serious problem. So that's another watch this space really in terms of effects for the wool industry. Yeah, look, the market's been really good all this season. It's just that these these outside influences um, have the potential to knock us around a bit price-wise. Yeah, all right. So the outlook for the rest of the year then, Josh, how are you reading it considering what's going on around the world? I oh, look prior to probably the last three or four weeks, the market's very buoyant, and it was looking very buoyant further out into the year. You know, as the world starts to travel again and businesses go back to the office, and and people can start to have their holidays, etc., and, and and travel. That that was definitely from the wool industry's point of view, looking at it being very positive as far as prices go, and, and the market in general over the next twelve to eighteen months. De- definitely a lot of optimism there. This period might sort of take the edge off that. It's a bit, it's a bit early to tell, but um, certainly things are looking very optimistic further out. All right. Really great to get your insights. Thank you so much for being part of the Country Hour. No worries. Thanks, Belinda. Josh Lamb, he is the President of the Australian Council of Wool Exporters and Processors. Quarter past 12. Hi, my name's Lynn. I've found at Arthur River and I've been there for quite a while. And... ABC Radio, bushfire information. Ellie Honeybone with you with a bushfire update. A bushfire watch and act is still active in the Shire of Manjimup and Nanup for Donnelly River to the to Scott Road and west of Vass Highway. So if you're in the area around Donnelly River, including the Donnelly River Huts and Boat Landing Road, there is a possible threat to lives and homes with a fire in the area and conditions changing. The latest, though, fireys have now contained that fire, but it is still not under control. Anyone in the area can leave via Vass Highway, but drive with caution because there is thick smoke in the area. There are more road closures this morning. These include Ritter Road from Old Vass Road to the coast, Donnelly Boat Landing Road, Donnelly River at Boat Landing Road, Jangardup Road and Pneumonia Road, Scott Road, Woodabarup Road and Twin Carry Beach Road. But Calcup Road, Warren Beach Track and Black Point Road at Stewart Road have reopened. And there is a number of park and camp closures which include Twin Carry Beach, Lake Jasper Campsite, Grass Tree Hollow, Snotty Gobble Loop Campsites and parts of the Dontecastro National Park. The walking trail to the Bicentennial Tree and the Warren National Park have reopened. For more information, check out the Emergency WA website or keep listening to ABC Southwest for hourly updates. Just a reminder, a bushfire watch and act is still active in the Shire of Manjimup and Nanup 
for Donnelly River to Scott Road and west of Vass Highway. The fire is contained, but it is not under control. We will have more updates for you in the next hour. The powerhouse and reliable partner that our allies and partners need right here in Australia to develop these resources. We're going to dig them up right here. We're going to refine them right here. And we're going to make the products that use them right here. Every part of that supply chain, we want WA to be the partner of choice. A partner whose products are high quality and consistent. A partner people can trust to deliver as the world has depended on us for iron ore. Prime Minister Scott Morrison speaking this morning at a Chamber of Commerce function in Perth about wanting Australia to become a critical minerals powerhouse by 2030. 17 past 12. Arafura Resources is a company looking to start a rare earths mine on a station north of Alice Springs. And as part of this announcement today, it was awarded $30 million. Managing Director Gavin Lockyer says this funding is a huge boost to companies trying to get projects up and running. Oh, it means a great deal. This is actually a grant. So uh, for every $2 we spend, uh, the government will put in a dollar. Specifically in this grant, it's towards the separation plant, so the very back end of our process. And, uh, and you know, by the government's uh, contributing towards the capital cost of that, it obviously reduces the amount that we have to go out and raise. So it really pushes us along nicely. How expensive is that separation plant? Yeah, it's about $100 million just for the separation plant. Um, and, you know, you put that in perspective, it's about 10% um, direct, and that's direct cost, uh, 10% of the overall capital cost. So, you know, it's a, not, a, not an insignificant portion, but it's where all the real um, value add is, is, is done to our product. So product that feeds into uh, the rare earth separation plant is typically a mixed rare earth product. Uh, and if you don't build the separation plant, then that product will have to go offshore, namely China, for, for downstream processing. Uh, and, and so, you know, this is a, a, a significant um, uh, matter, not just for our Afura, but also for Australia. It's a development of a whole new industry here in Australia. Managing Director of Arafura, Gavin Lockyer, speaking to Hugo Ricard-Bell about the $30 million that's been awarded by the federal government in this latest round of modern manufacturing initiative grants. This round worth more than $240 million to the critical minerals industry. 19 past 12. Well, Western Australia is also home to a number of rare earths projects, from Linus in the goldfields to northern minerals in the Kimberley. George Bork is the executive director of PVW Resources, which has a rare earth project south of Halls Creek in the East Kimberley. PVW Resources isn't at the stage of being able to take advantage of these grants, but George Bork says it's still great news for the whole industry. It's interesting. I've been in the rare earth industry for 16 years and for a long time of the 16 years, it's been a real struggle because of people's lack of awareness and um, understanding of the rare earth sector. So when you have governments like the Australian government allocate money to the rare earth industry, it provides uh, additional uh, com- confidence to the market that this is a critical industry. So nothing beats governments and activities like this to support a critical industry. 
Why do you think it's happened now and not before? As you said, you've been in the industry for um, 16 years. Why now? Look, um, you know, things like the geopolitical concerns around the world, I think COVID highlighted to everyone the criticality of supply chains and, and that from many perspectives. People are now starting to realise that the electric vehicle evolution is real and we're seeing real numbers of vehicles and many countries around the world actually having a higher adoption of that technology. People are now starting to appreciate what rare earths are used for, if you like. So I think they've now realised with some of the stuff that's happened with China for the last few years that you just can't rely on one country, for example, to dominate in one particular supply chain. And I'm not not having a go at China here, I'm just saying you just can't rely for monopolies. You need to have, you know, good distribution. Australia's, we've got a wealth of rare earth um, potential here and it's great that we're seeing an opportunity to go downstream a bit. So this MMI, I think, is a great initiative to try to create, create and capture more value in the country. $240 million across the industry. There are a few players in this game. Is that enough? Oh, look, no, but the ultimate sector is when you can survive on more traditional equity and debt style funding rather than um, rely on government handouts, for a better word. Um, Having said that, you do need support from the government to make the ultimate shifts to develop new industry. And let's face it, China built the industry after the US dominated it for many years, and that was done by the support of central government, right? And... The money that's required is astronomical. So this is a great start. But as I always say to people, you know, the companies themselves have to do some of the heavy lifting or a significant amount. So it needs to be more, but we have to be mindful that there's only so much money that can go around. I'd love it to be more to rare earths, but, uh, you know, we do have to have a bit of a a balanced view of this. George, what do you think the, the industry will need to keep it viable? It's great to have some investment to kind of kick these processing facilities off, but to make it a viable long-term prospect when you have rising input costs, you have a high uh, cost of wages is a big thing for Australia. Is this going to be a viable industry for the country into the future? If, if you stand back and have a look at the rare earth industry in China, the industry, the direct associated jobs with rare earths is not that huge. I mean, the amount of people employed in China for mining isn't a significant number. It doesn't uh, turn the dial in terms of their employment challenges. But then when you look at what rare earths participate in and where they're able to drag in supply chains into China so people could get access to rare earths, you start adding up all the impacted jobs by the leverage off rare earths and that makes a significant impact, right? So. We need to be a manuf- you need to have manufacturing capability. We need to make sure that we're not just miners. I think people are realizing that um, technology is right around us and is going to be more. And if you look at the applications that rare earths are part of, it's part of the new world. Um, it's part of you know all our new challenges going to zero carbon emission, etc. We need to do a lot more exploration in Australia, find more projects. The challenge is going away from the short termism where for a long time, people couldn't get away from China because China was being, you know, quite an attractive place to get cheap rare earths, for a better word. And part of that may have been to protect their industry and not have new competition come in because um, the economics wouldn't support it. So it's important that the whole 
supply chain understands that there might be some short-term pain by having to pay maybe more for rare earths whilst we develop alternative supply chains from China. George Bork, he's the executive director of PVW Resources, and he was speaking to Michelle Stanley. Now, some of the other winners in this round of funding include Pure Battery Technologies, which received $119.6 million for its manganese cobalt refinery in the Kalgoorlie region. $49 million went to Australian Vanadium's processing facility near Mekathara and $45 million has been allocated to Alpha HPA's alumina production facility in Gladstone. 25 past 12 on the text, Glenn in Esperance says a company called Mount Ridley Mines is currently drilling for rare earth 70 kilometres northeast of Esperance and it appears they're having a great deal of success. Maybe the biggest rare earth deposit in the world. What a great story for WA, says Glenn. And we've just checked, and that company, Mount Ridley Mines, has just started drilling in the Esperance region this week. There has been quite a big build-up to that drilling. The deposit was Jork compliant in 2012, and Jork is the professional code of practice that sets minimum standards for public reporting of minerals exploration results, mineral resources and ore reserves. 26 past 12, you can be part of the conversation too on the text 0448922604. News headlines, not too far away, then off to the Bureau of Meteorology to check the weather conditions right around the state. First though, it sounds like there's been a little bit of a mixed reaction to the news billionaire Andrew Forrest is considering setting up a green hydrogen energy hub in the Esperance region. Some local pilots don't like the idea of wind turbines on farms, saying they'd be a real safety hazard. More on that shortly. But if you missed the story yesterday, just recently, Andrew Forrest approached Esperance farmers just to see if they'd like to lease some land to his company, Fortescue Future Industries, so he can build wind turbines and solar panels for a planned green hydrogen hub. Maya Schweitzer is a director for the company. Yeah, so there's great wind and solar resource along there. There's land. Um, Of course, it's being used for other things in some cases. And one of our most important priorities is to make sure that we can coexist with other uses of land, including farming, um, pastoral activities and things like that. Um, There's access to the coast there and access um, both for water to desalinate and use in making hydrogen, but also access to the ocean to export. Those are the really key physical ingredients, but equally we're looking for leadership. We're looking for that that local leadership and that frontier attitude, that welcoming of projects like this, both to contribute to the greater cause of global warming, but also really to contribute to the local economy and development opportunities um, for people in the communities. Um, we've engaged with the ports. Um, we've engaged around the potential marine park. We've engaged with aerial spraying contractors uh, because, of course, putting up wind turbines is of great interest to them and the work that they do and and how to do that safely. So we're really, you know, looking to engage early with a a wide range of stakeholders. Maya Schweitzer, Fortescue Future Industries Director for Australia West. 
speaking to Emily Smith about those green energy plans for the southeast corner of Western Australia's Grain Belt. As I mentioned earlier, some of the pilots who work in the Esperance airspace don't like the thought of dodging wind turbines. Scott Mackey is the co-director of an aerial spraying company and says turbines make it hard to spray crops and fight fires. Uh, well, they're massive hazards to to us. We operate at the same level or lower than those wind turbines and uh, they represent a, a huge hazard and in conditions where there's smoke, uh, the inability to see those turbines are very much going to just negate firefighting operations in and around that area. So, um, yeah, our association, we don't uh, support wind farms in areas of highly productive agricultural land and land that's susceptible to bushfires. And this area around Esperance is that sort of land, right? It is, is exactly that sort of land. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And if it was just decided that, that it was too hazardous due to smoke or whatever um, to operate around those wind turbines, then it just would not happen. So um, I guess that's a risk for whoever may want to have wind turbines put onto their property. They may not be able to um, have aerial support in the event of a bushfire. Have you met with Fortescue Future Industries and raised any of the concerns either from an aerial spraying perspective or from a bushfire fighting perspective? Yes, I've met with three representatives probably over the last two years. In regards to it, uh, we've sat down and talked. Um, I've um, told them my concerns um, and the concerns of the industry as a whole. They've listened, but I guess because it's just in the preliminary stages of scoping it out to see you know, whether it's going to be worthwhile doing, they haven't offered anything concrete, but they have sat down and talked and have said that they will continue to do that. I haven't heard anything probably in the last six months, I guess. So um, I guess it's good that they do want to meet with us and address our concerns. But as far as anything more than that, that's, that, that hasn't happened. Scott Mackey, he's the co-director of an aerial spraying company in Esperance. You can read more on that story. It's on the ABC News website. Just search ABC Esperance Andrew Forrest and you will find Emily's story. 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Tony Carr is here. What's making the headlines, Tony? Good afternoon, Belinda. A woman aged in her 80s has died with COVID-19 in Western Australia. It's the state's 14th confirmed coronavirus death. WA Today has recorded 6,062 new infections. 123 people with the virus are in hospital, two of them in intensive care. A leading youth mental health researcher says WA's plan to reform the mental health system needs to be refocused. The government yesterday announced it will adopt the recommendations outlined in a report by the Mental Health Commission on Services for Young People. Patrick McGorry says the mental health system needs to provide different services for different age groups. And the Defence Minister Peter Dutton has described the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine as a miscalculation that could lead to the demise of the Russian President Vladimir Putin. Russian forces 
forces are tightening their grip on Ukraine and stepping up their bombardment of the capital, Kyiv. Mr Dutton says Mr Putin never accepted the outcome of the Cold War and is trying to restore the former Soviet Union. Belinda, I'll have some more news at one o'clock. Look forward to it. Thank you for that, Tony. 28 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varisgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Really good catching up with you this afternoon. Between now and one o'clock, off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market. Also taking a look at a trial that's underway to kill weeds. Uh, Not with chemicals, not by burning them, but by electrocuting them. Taking a look at that trial underway in Western Australia shortly. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Luke Huntington, how's it looking around northern and eastern parts of Western Australia? Yeah, over northern um, and eastern parts, uh, not too much going on today. So we've got the usual um, showers and thunderstorms expected in the Kimberley um, and then through the northeastern interior today. Um, nothing much through the through the Eucla or the uh, the gold fields. And heading into tomorrow, uh, similar conditions. We'll see uh, showers and thunderstorms uh, continuing over the Kimberley and northeastern parts of the interior. Um, and then thunderstorms could be quite gusty over the Kimberley region once they get going during the afternoon and evening period. Um, and then heading into Friday, um, similar conditions, but we'll also see the thunderstorms extend along a trough through the inland Pilbara there, but still remaining over the Kimberley and northern interior. We may see a little bit of an increase in the uh, amount of rainfall um, in thunderstorms through the Kimberley region. And by Saturday, um, we'll see uh, storms all through the Kimberley, through the north interior and into the Pilbara. And into Sunday, it uh, gets a little bit more active. So we'll see thunderstorms again through the Kimberley, um, western parts of the interior, um, through the Pilbara region, and then through the um, northern goldfields and northeastern Gascoigne as well. And Luke, what have you got for the southwest land division for the rest of the week and into the weekend? Yeah, so we did see um, another weak cold front just brush the southwest um, coast today. So it's been delivering some light showers um, pretty much between Perth and Albany along the coast and just through the adjacent inland areas. But we really haven't seen too much rainfall, less than a couple of millimetres or so. And it clears back up for, uh, tomorrow. We do see a, a high-pressure system um, developing over the southwest land division. So pretty much just some um, light shower onshore, flower, onshore uh, showers along the south coast um, during the morning period but there wouldn't be too much in that and then on Friday we see another trough uh, near the west coast so that'll actually increase uh, the temperatures once again um, through inland parts of the southwest land division and along the south coast between Esperance and Albany so anywhere between uh, that region uh, looks like temperatures in the high 30s once again and at the same time we'll see a, a another weak cold front brushing the southwest corner of the uh, state late in the day and that front moves through uh, most of the southwest land division on Saturday, and uh, it does have a cloud band associated with it. So that'll probably enhance itself on on the Sunday period, just with an upper trough um, amplifying um, and then increasing shower activity uh, through most parts of the southwest land division. Probably mainly through southern parts on the Sunday. So there could be a little bit of rainfall associated with that, so with the cloud band. So maybe five to ten millimeters uh, over the southern parts of the south. Southwest Land Division. So even um, the Esperance area on, the, on that Sunday period looks like it could be in the bullseye of around 5 to 10 millimetres. So uh, hopefully a little bit of rainfall for those guys on the Sunday period. And then back to this afternoon, Luke, any warnings? Uh, there are actually no warnings out 
at the moment. Oh, well, I will let you go. Thank you very much for that. It is 24 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Richard Hudson just stepping into the studio. Much rainfall about overnight, Richard. Ooh, this will take a while. In the Kimberley, warm and topped it with four mils. And then in the rest of the state... A few places in the southwest recorded between one and three mils, but nothing recorded anywhere else apart from that. But the big news of today, I don't know if you saw this this morning, Bell. Uh, tickets for the State of Origin number two at Perth Stadium go on sale tomorrow. This is the big event on June 26. Great. Thanks You're, for that. Even bigger news, 4.10 this afternoon, something slightly, something slightly bigger is actually happening. I do know this. The yep. AFL. It's yeah, all on again. It is. Hey, counting grand, the days down. Grand final replay. Melbourne versus the Dogs. You'll have your pie ready. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Bye-bye. 23 to 1 and off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market just before 1. And you'll learn all about a new animal welfare alliance that's just been formed. First, though, when it comes to killing weeds, you've probably tried spraying them, maybe even burning them. But have you ever thought about electrocuting them? Well, this is a thing. A new electric machine is being trialled by the Department of Primary Industries in Northam, just a couple of hours northeast of Perth. The electro-weeding machine is the first of its kind to be used in Australia, and there's real hope it could become a viable alternative to using chemicals for weed control on crops. Deep Herd research scientist Miranda Slaven says with a growing rate of herbicide resistance, and the rising negative perception of chemical use, she's feeling pretty confident that it could soon be used in Australian agriculture. So the machine hooks up to your tractor, so it'll be run off the PTO shaft, and depending on the different machines, you can have a front-mounted or a back-mounted applicator unit. And the applicator unit has um, rows of electrodes on it, which when they come into contact with the plant, they or the target weed, I should say, they transfer an electrical current through the weed and its roots and that current transforms into heat energy within the plant cells and causes them to burst, which kills the plant. Okay, so it sort of electrocutes the weeds, does it? Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. How does it target just weeds and, and not the crop? So it is a non-selective method of weed control. So if the contact is made with the crop, then there will be the potential for damage to the crop but you can use it in various different ways. So with fallow control, you can easily do complete control of the weed in your paddock, or you can also do a crop topping or weed wiping effect. And there are currently machines in development for inter-row broad-scale control for grain, and they have produced ones for use in viticulture and horticulture currently at the moment as well. So where are those machines located? Are they within Australia? Uh, no, currently there's no technology which has actually been certified for use here in Australia. So this will be an Australian first with the machines coming over from Europe. We have a partnership with Case New Holland and they've sourced two machines for us from the company Zasso in Europe. And so that machine will be coming over here to be tested and then hopefully certified for use in a couple of years based on the results of these trials. What kind of weeds are you testing it on? So we're looking at a lot of common summer and winter species. So a lot of your grasses and then also your broadleaf. So specifically we've been looking 
we've done a few little morphology weed trials at the moment. So just characterizing the morphology of the different weed species. And that's because morphology can impact the efficacy of electric weed control quite drastically. So if you have highly branched species, sometimes the electrode can only come into contact with part of the plant and therefore it can regrow from the other sections. And this can be the same for those with extensive root systems. So, for example, your grasses is kind of similar to a herbicide. You can get regrowth from some parts that aren't completely controlled. So we're looking into those kind of factors and then also just kind of testing which will be more applicable and also the application rate that's needed, so the voltage and the contact time required. Does it seem to have an effect on the soil health, do you know? So preliminary trials have indicated that there's no effect, negative effect on soil biology. However, this has not been extensively tested as yet. So ZPED will be conducting a lot of trials into this. As the electricity travels through the roots as well, there is the potential that this could be used as a way to control kind of those diseases and pests that live on the plant root system. And that could be another alternative use for this method of weed control. Deep Herd Research Scientist Miranda Slaven speaking to Georgia Hargraves. Georgia Hargreaves about a new electro-weeding machine trial about to kick off in Northam. That's certainly going to be one to watch, isn't it? 18 to 1. The wheat market continues to respond to the Ukraine-Russia war, with Chicago wheat futures for May worth 1,157 US cents a bushel, up 58 cents after the previous day's losses. Between them, Russia and Ukraine produce about a third of the world's export wheat. And as this conflict continues, there's real doubt about the country's abilities to get the crops fertilised, harvested and exported. Paul Willows is from XLD Commodities and says at this stage, all exports of grains and oil seeds from Ukraine are at a standstill. Infrastructure has been so badly damaged that I think it's very unlikely that Ukraine will come back to the export market for quite some time. You know, roads have been damaged, ports have been damaged, and even facilities that are used to to crush oil seeds to make oil and meal, they've all been damaged as well. So what does it mean for us? Well, it's meant that we've seen uh, wheat prices rally from around $360 a tonne to $400 a tonne for new crop delivery. And canola prices have now rallied for new crop delivery well above $800 a tonne. And for both of those crops, you know, that's historically high price for this time of year. Normally we, well, even in the case of canola, that's historically the high price ever. But in the case of wheat, you know, we normally only see those sort of prices in a drought year. So this is very exceptional times for for grain and oil seeds. We can't really look at long-term impacts now, but the it's the situation, I suppose, is starting to have a little bit more clarity probably since the conflict started. In terms of the way that that's been received around the world, you mentioned obviously the prices have rallied here. Has that been echoed in, in other markets? Yeah, it certainly has. And, and some would argue that our prices locally are still undervalued significantly relative to other places in the world. You know, in, in the case of wheat in, in the US in Chicago, we've reached record high prices. I would argue that a lot of that's been driven by uh, speculators and hedge funds and not so much supported by the fundamentals. It's very difficult to 
underestimate how important that part of the world has been to ensuring that there is you know adequate supply food grains you know i my views i'm probably not jumping on the hysterical bandwagon just yet i do think that grain merchants around the world will solve logistical issues to get grain or surplus grain out of Russia over a period of time. But one thing is for sure, even before this conflict started, the world needed farmers to grow more grain. More area needed to be planted to wheat, barley, canola. And that certainly wasn't happening before. But what it means is now that the war has started and that supply that comes out of Black Sea is very uncertain, prices need to be at a level to encourage farmers to grow, to put more area into grains. Paul Willows, he's the Managing Director of XLD Commodities, speaking to Luke Radford. Quarter to one. Rob Lafroy, Nalbra Station in the Murchison. I love the listening to the country every day. On ABC Radio WA. A new alliance of animal welfare organisations has formed ahead of the federal election to push for an overhaul of Australia's animal welfare laws. Co-director of the Australian Alliance for Animals, Dr Jed Goodfellow, says the group's reform agenda includes the establishment of an independent National Commission for Animal Welfare, the creation of ministerial portfolios for animal welfare and a transparent process for creating national animal care standards. Dr Goodfellow says it's now time to, once and for all, get animal welfare on the political agenda. There are a number of reforms that we think are really important, and they include establishing a more independent governance arrangement for animal welfare. So we would like to see the establishment of a National Commission for Animal Welfare, because under current arrangements, animal welfare is very much being neglected and it's not being prioritised in the way the Australian community would like to see. So the Productivity Commission has recommended this reform, so we'll be certainly taking that up and pursuing that key reform with the federal government. State governments have got their own animal protection legislation, for example, in Victoria, the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. Is the state legislation not good enough in your opinion? Yeah, that's right. So the states and territories have regulatory responsibility for animal welfare, but there is a a core role for the Australian government to provide leadership and coordination of the various state and territory jurisdictions. So that's what we're calling on the Australian government to do, is to re-engage in that national process to, to ensure that we have consistent animal welfare standards, robust animal welfare standards that reflect both community expectations, but also current animal welfare science as well. So it is a, it's a shared cooperative relationship between federal and state jurisdictions. Some states are doing better than others, and uh, we'll certainly be working at the state level as well. You're speaking a lot about community expectations. How does this organisation and how do you know what the community wants? So we, um, through our membership organisations, do conduct quite regular social research and, and social monitoring and polling of community expectations around animal welfare. And and that will happen you know, on a yearly basis. And we do see very high expectations around certain practices that are still common and, and legal under our current system. So we can see that there's a bit of a disconnect there and uh, that's the disconnect that we're trying to address. We're effectively going to be acting as a conduit, if you like, between the millions of Australians who care about animal welfare and our political leaders to make sure that our political leaders actually start to listen. 
most people would say that they do care about animal welfare. But do you think the general public are aware of what's happening to some farm animals? No, generally awareness is reasonably low when it comes to certain practices that do cause pain, suffering, harm to animals. And uh, and that's the risk, I guess, for animal-based industries is that when consumers and when the general community is made aware of some of the more controversial practices, all of a sudden there's quite a great degree of, of, of shock and there can be anger following that as well. So it's really important for livestock and other animal-based industries to get on the front foot and start to address those practices, start to invest in alternatives to causing animals pain and suffering because consumers and the general community, they're becoming less and less tolerant of those practices. So their, their expectations are increasing and we're going to be ensuring that those expectations are reflected in Australia's laws and policies around animal welfare. Co-director of the Australian Alliance for Animals, Dr Jed Goodfellow, speaking to Jane McNaughton. The core members of the Alliance are Compassion in World Farming, Four Paws Australia, Humane Society International Australia, World Animal Protection Australia and Voiceless. 11 minutes to one. Just before the news at one, off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market today. And a Pilbara beef producer has had to make some costly changes to get around some of the industry's challenging supply chain issues. Between COVID-19 rules, the border closure, worker shortages and rising fuel prices, it's been a really tricky start to the year for Yarry Station's Outback Beef brand. Tara Shields works on Yarry Station and says adapting to the changing circumstances is expensive, which means they've had to increase their prices. Yeah, it's been a bit of a wild ride, if we put it that way. We started off okay, but since the issues with the supply chain and the abattoirs and them not having enough staff due to mostly COVID border restrictions, but now also just the prices of getting everything everywhere, we've had a few issues with them not having enough staff to actually be able to process our beef. And as I'm pretty sure is happening over East as well, there's even just a backlog of cattle waiting to be processed because they just simply can't get as many through the doors each day. So how are you trying to get around that? Um, so we have for a while now tried to keep our prices pretty steady, but we've just recently had to increase our prices to kind of keep us a bit closer to market value. We're still below it. Um, so that's one way that we've trying to combat the increased prices of us processing but also we have had to recently swap to different abattoirs and try different ways to process our beef by way of um, getting different processing plants to where they're killed. So we'll get them killed at one abattoir and then have to actually transport them to a different place to then get them processed, which then also adds costs at our end. How, how are you manage, managing that from a business side of things? Um, is it Are you having to bring in extra staff or you mentioned the cost and having to rise the cost of your product? Is that How is that playing out? For us, we've had to put um, a few more people on the ground really to try and get all these supply chain issues ironed out a bit. We've had to send people down to help process. So instead of having one or two people there, we've had to have uh, three people there or sometimes even a bit more to try and help out with changing over how we're getting it processed. I guess for us, it's been a lot of shuffling. 
Is it still viable for you to be running a private beef brand in this kind of market? Definitely it is. Um, For us, we've been focusing on keeping quite stable for our customers. So we've been making sure that even though the market price has been going up, we've been trying to keep consistent for them. Um, So we've kind of formed that trust and that bond with them. Um, Now that the prices have really skyrocketed, we are having to bring our prices up a bit close to market value, but still keeping them quite below. So for us, by keeping that consistency with our customers and that trust, we have been able to definitely stay afloat and um, come out pretty good. And you do have the the pop-up shop and the the private sort of sales that um, that you do online and and that kind of thing as well. Um, I've noticed that you have had an increase of your prices. Uh, Depends on the kind of offering that people are buying, but in some cases, five bucks a kilo. How's the consumer response been to that? Yeah, so our customers have actually had a quite a good response to it so far because we've looked after them for so long they were kind of not expecting it but they were happy to pay because we've been looking after them so we had quite a good response how are you going staff wise we've spoken with annabelle coppin um in the past many times about trying to get people in over the border you yourself have come in from interstate for another season um do you finally have a full crew for for the muster We are so close. Um, We've been very lucky to have a lot of returning staff this year, um, with some of them staying in WA as well over the wet season. So for getting them to Yarry, that was a lot easier compared to the other half of the crew, which um, we have got a couple of newbies and getting them across the border. I know for Annabelle was, I think, a few hair pulling moments for her, but we have got almost everyone in now. And you got a bit of rain with the cyclone, which is lucky because not everyone did. Um, but are things looking good for the master? How's the how how are the um, pastors looking? Yeah, we have just had a bit of rain from Cyclone Annika, which um, has really brought the property a bit more to life again. We got green shoots coming up, but we are still hoping for a bit more just to really fill out all of our pastures, and so we can keep going with a really another good, really good season. Tara Shields from Yarry Station speaking to Michelle Stanley about their beef brand, Outback Beef, and plans for the upcoming muster. Six minutes to one. I wonder if you've eaten okra before. It's certainly not something I'm popping in the trolley very often. But if you go along to any good Indian or Lebanese restaurant, this little green fruit is pretty much a staple. At the moment, they are super expensive. Kevin True is at the Sydney markets and says in recent months, the price for okra has nearly doubled, reaching record levels of up to $14 a kilo. And the reason for the price hike, well, it's the floods. This time of year, we rely on a lot of uh, produce from uh, Queensland and uh, local New South Wales. And most of the people who are um, in flood-prone areas and even yeah, the lowlands have yeah, been affected by a lot of uh, water and getting a lot of uh, damaged crop. And, um, yeah, just, just the weather's just been no good for anything at all. So the people who are benefiting from this uh, price hike is people from Darwin who's grown okra and the people who are a bit more on high land uh, in Queensland who are able to still pick and send. And yeah, we've got a real, real price hike I've never seen before. We're selling about $13, $14 a kilo for okra. What would the price normally be this time of year? This time of year, it's it's relatively cheap. I'd say about an $8 average. 
So what are you hearing from your suppliers in those flood-affected areas? How long might it take them to get back up and running? Yeah, it will be a couple of months. Um, I've got one grower who's uh, lost about 80% of their crop. And, uh, yeah, he just called me last Friday saying, um, you know, he's got probably about eight to ten boxes coming down my way in the next couple of days when he was new to sending about 500 kilos. Now he's down to about, yeah, 100, so he's lost quite a bit. And he's going to have to replant a lot of his uh, fields. He might not even make it because uh, by the time, you know, he he plants, it's going to be uh, winter soon. Mm. So, he yeah, a lot of people up in Queensland might not replant because it's just not worth the while because by the time you know winter comes along the okra is just going to grow too slow for them so yeah we might just have a real tough you know a couple months until uh darwin starts kicking off it must be the, the the biggest news story there at the markets is it the floods so yeah sydney and queensland uh yeah a lot of a lot of produce is gone so now um there's a big struggle for vegetables and a lot of people are getting interstate from Queensland and South Australia. And, uh, yeah, demand is very high for most most lines. Kevin True, he's from Southern Asia Produce in the Sydney markets, talking to Matt Brand. Three minutes to one and off to the markets next. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. The rising costs of living, charity groups warn they will be swamped as prices for essentials such as petrol and groceries increase. What can be done to ease the pressure on household budgets? And despite worldwide sanctions, why is a Queensland refinery partly owned by Russian oligarchs with close ties to the Kremlin still allowed to export? Those stories are more from right across the country and around the globe on The World Today. A couple of minutes to one here on the Country Hour. 13,000 sheep and lambs sold at Katanning today, so numbers up 5,000 on last week. Tracy Kilner's at the sale yards now. And Tracy, I hear there was a price drop for some lines. Any reason for that apart? from the fact that it was a larger sale? A um, couple of reasons. The poorly presented and low quality stock were discounted with minimal interest from buyers, while the trade and heavyweight um, lambs had a fall up to $17 with lower demand from processors. Some of them are experiencing a shortfall in workers due to quarantines. Um, live export were chasing medium weight weather lambs and feeder buyers showed interest in the better framed lines. Mutton eased slightly with processor demand saying heavy use sell to $200 and big framed weathers topped the market returning $212 ahead. Lightweight lambs weighing under 12 kilos sold from $33 to $85 ahead. Weights under 16 kilos carcass weight eased making from 75 to 127 and the heavier under 18 kilos, kilo carcass weights returned 114 to $163 ahead. Trade weight lambs were down, returning $139 to $174, and heavy lambs eased as well, selling from $170 to $209 a head. Processors purchased young merino ewe hoggets from $79 to $200, and weathers from $105 to $210 a head. The crossbred hoggets sold from $120 to $178. Lightweight store ewes made from $23 for very light score one ewes to $155, carrying a full fleece. Medium weight prime ewes weighing under 30 kilos. Carcass weight returned 140 to $191 with a full fleece. Heavy weight ewes over 30 kilos. Carcass weight eased $3, selling from $178 to $200. Mature heavy weathers made $180 to $212. 
and mature ram sold from $32 to $120 a head. Thank you very much for that, Tracy. It is time for the news. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.